Welcome to the RPS Pharmacene podcast, our regular podcast that takes a fresh look at the pharmacene with guests from the world of pharmacy and beyond. Now, please welcome your host. My name is Gina Martini and I'm the Chief Scientist for the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. Today, we have another Pharmacene podcast, but today we have a bit of a difference. I'm delighted to be joined by Kindeva Drug Delivery, a new organisation that many of us used to know as FreeM. I'm delighted to be joined by Laura Walsh, who's part of Global Business Development. Laura, good afternoon. How are you today? Gino, I'm fine. Really pleased to be invited to join you today. We've known each other for many, many years, so it's an absolute pleasure today to introduce to you the team from Kindeva, Dr John Vasilakos who is our global head of MTS, our microstructured transdermal system or microneedles for short. And he heads up our business development operation and is also a senior research immunologist. Also, Dr. Lisa Dick, who I have worked with for many years. Lisa has been involved in our microneedle platform for a decade or more, I'm sure. And Lisa is the leading platform scientist for our microneedles. And I work not only on this technology, but also Kindeva's passive transdermal and also inhalation business. Well, it's an absolute delight to have you, Laura, John and Lisa, and to have Kindeva as part of this Pharmacene podcast. John, let's start with Kindeva Drug Delivery. Who are you? I kind of mentioned 3M before, but you can give more background to how Kindeva evolved and what you guys actually do. Certainly. So... Kindeva is a global CDMO, contract development manufacturing organization, and we're a CDMO for the pharmaceutical industry. We develop and manufacture complex drug device combination products, and our focus is on transdermal and inhalation drug delivery products. So we help companies develop products. We don't develop the active pharmaceutical ingredients. Rather, we specialize in the delivery systems. And our emphasis as an organization is on formulation, product development, and, and of course, commercial manufacturing. We have greater than uh, 900 employees. Our GMP facilities are in the UK and in the US. We're headquartered in Minneapolis or St. Paul, Minnesota. And recently, as you mentioned early on, Kendeva was formerly a division of 3M Company called 3M Drug Delivery Systems Division. We were divested by 3M in May of 2020, selling it to a group called Altaris Capital Partners, which is a private equity firm. The thing that you should probably note, too, just a little bit about Kendeva is that we actually have a, a really long history. Uh, our roots go all the way back to a company called Riker Laboratories, which was in California in the U.S., and they were the company that developed the first meter dose inhaler in the mid-50s. So 3M purchased Riker. They retained the name for a period of time. They then changed it to 3M Pharmaceuticals. Now, our drug delivery systems division was all part of that. And then later it was split, I want to say, in the late 90s, early 2000s. So you had pharmaceuticals and then drug delivery systems division. And then 3M sold its pharmaceutical division but retained the drug delivery systems division until very recently when we were divested and became Kendeva. And, and maybe the most important thing, I don't want to say the most important thing, but an important thing to note is, you know, our roots as a company, even though we are a contract development manufacturing organization, our roots are in the pharmaceutical industry. So we have a lot of people within our organization who have been directly involved in the development of pharmaceutical products. Thank you, John. 
And actually, we are the Royal Pharmaceutical Society. And of course, many pharmacists have handled many of your products. There are those inhalers you're talking about. Pharmacists dispense to patients or taught patients how to use those, meet those inhalers very well. I actually think I even remember the word Rikera. But actually, to the present day, many of the products that 3M developed were developed, you know, in the UK and many pharmacists handle them. So what a great heritage behind Kindava. Uh, I suppose the next question is, how has COVID-19 affected Kindava? Laura, any insights you can give us? Yes, I'm located in the northwest of the UK. I'm very close to my home. We have a facility where we manufacture the valves in the cans that are then assembled into metered dose inhalers. And as John referred to before, we are a contract manufacturer. We have partners around the world and I can tell you we've been very busy indeed during the COVID period. I think what we've seen is that despite additional needs coming from new patients, patients that have been prescribed with inhalers because they've had COVID, we know it's a respiratory virus. Anecdotally, we've also heard that patients that perhaps are suffering from asthma and COPD I've kind of woken up a little bit and thought, well, my lungs need to be as good as they can possibly be. Um, if this is a respiratory illness and I'm maybe likely to contract it, I need to really pick up my game and start to take my inhaler as I am expected to do. So compliance has increased and that has added to the pressure on our factories, not just in Clitheroe, but also in the middle of in, in Loughborough, where we still aerosols, and then also in Northridge. Just for some stats, of course, scientists love statistics, and I was checking back with the, the management at Clitheroe. We actually increased the workforce on our site in Clitheroe by 50% within six months of COVID really hitting the headlines. And overall, in production, we increased the workforce by 80%. Weekends solidly were worked for nine months, and many of those were overnight shifts. And, and I just want to recognise that our folks were key workers, leaving their homes to go and operate machines to manufacture inhalers that we then sent around the world to support our customers. And I think we're exceptionally proud to know that we were part of a historical event. Beyond that, we really did scratch our heads. What more can we do that goes above and beyond being a business? So we also offered land at our Loughborough facility to the UK vaccine task force we have quite a large facility in the midlands and we offered that up to them in case that could be utilized for the storage of the vaccines as they became approved or indeed for any other use and we continue we're still as busy supporting covid effort from our facilities in the uk and, and in the us so it's impacted us we're busy and we, we remain so Thank you, Laura. And can I say on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, can I thank everybody at Kindeva for doing a great job in keeping the supply chains open. We do know as pharmacists and as the society, the great pressure that had been on inhalers. And of course, you know, this dreadful disease can affect people's uh, respiratory function. And so it was really critically important. Okay, change in tap. I think one of the major reasons, of course, to bring uh, you guys to the podcast is to talk about some of the technology. I'm a drug delivery scientist by training. And I know that Kindeva has some very interesting technology for injections and I presume really suitable for vaccination. John, can you give us more background to the technology you guys are developing, which could be of use for vaccination? Yes, certainly. 
So Condeva offers, I'll say, two main types of drug delivery systems that are suitable for vaccination. Both of these are microneedle technologies. One is a solid microneedle and the other is hollow microneedles. And what these technologies do is they administer drugs or vaccines, in this case, directly into the skin. So, you know, in brief, the solid microneedles deliver drug or vaccine that has been dried onto the microneedles. So this is essentially a non-aqueous system. The vaccine is administered into the epidermis and dermis, so approximately 250 to 350 microns deep. And in contrast, the hollow microneedles deliver a solution directly into the dermis, about 800 microns deep. So what do they look like? The solid microneedles, they consist of two components, if you will, a microneedle patch and an applicator. And the patch is a, is a circle, five centimeter squared circle. It consists of, a, of an array of microneedles on a patch, about 316 microneedles on this medical grade adhesive patch. And then the applicator, it looks like the handle on a stick blender. It easily fits into your hand and it is designed for convenient self-administration and it's used to apply or to administer the microneedles directly into the skin. And again, you know, the purpose of the applicator is for consistent and reliable application of the microneedles into the skin. So the hollow microneedles also, they consist of really of two components. There's an injector and a cartridge. The injector is this handheld device. It's about 12 centimeters long, and it contains the circular array of microneedles, 12 microneedles per array. And the microneedle array, it's about the size of a 1P. Each microneedle is approximately equivalent to a 33-gauge needle, if you will. And again, the hollow microneedles administer a solution directly into the skin. I can also tell you just briefly how these devices work. Both of these devices are designed to be easy to use by either the patient or by the medical practitioner for administration in the home or in a medical clinic. For the solid microneedles, there's two components, the patch and the applicator. The microneedle patch that contains the drug is inserted into a slit that's on the side of the applicator. And then the applicator device is applied to the skin and it's simply pressed one time and released. And the patch then is applied to the skin. So there's this adhesive patch on the microneedle array that helps it stay in place. And after approximately five minutes or so, and this will depend on the drug, but as an example, after about five minutes, patch is removed and discarded. And then the applicator itself is reusable. And so for the hollow microneedles, there's a cartridge that's filled with the vaccine. And then it's inserted into the bottom of this injector. Then a cap that protects the microneedle array is simply removed. The needles are applied to the skin. And then there's a circular button that's on the top of the injector. It's pressed one time and the vaccine is automatically administered. And so an indicator on the top of the device, it simply allows for the patient or the medical practitioner to see that the dose has been completely delivered. Typically, delivery times are less than two minutes for physiological buffers, something like, you know, a vaccine, something that has the viscosity of, we'll say, a typical vaccine that's in a physiological buffer. And then after administration, the entire device is discarded. I think as we talk about vaccines here, what we really should be talking about is why administer a vaccine into the skin? So the skin, first, it's this major immune organ. It contains, importantly, these specialized immune cells called dendritic cells that are necessary to induce an immune response. Basically, what happens is, this is just general immunology here, dendritic cells will take up and they'll process an antigen, a pathogen, a vaccine. And then when they do that, 
they come in physical contact with B cells and T cells and they activate them. And hence, that's how one induces an immune response. Because the skin has large numbers of these dendritic cells, and the skin is a normal portal of entry for pathogens. So therefore, you know, dendritic cells in the skin is just a normal, natural environment for them. That's just part of the normal plumbing of the immune system. So the bottom line here is that microneedles directly deliver vaccines to cells that are most relevant for inducing immune responses. And the skin is that environment where it's done. So, I mean, I think that's really sort of the big picture here for microneedles and vaccination. Since it's rational to administer vaccines into the skin, you know, we have had significant interest from various organizations for using our microneedles for administration. And I think if you take a, a step back just for a second here and you think about microneedle technology in general, why would somebody want to use microneedle technology? Well, there's really two major reasons there's improving compliance or convenience. In vaccination, but the context of vaccination is not just because it's convenient to administer into the skin, but also for improving efficacy. Compliance actually does encompass a really broad area. And, you know, we can touch on this a little bit later, but patient doesn't necessarily want to inject themselves, for instance, with a needle that's 38 millimeters long, um, as an example. The interest in vaccination, of course, is logical based on skin being a major immune organ and dendritic cells being there. But in the context also of our hollow microneedles, I should point out the ability to administer volumes that are greater than a tenth of a mil is actually an asset. So typically using a, the technology that's available today, the typical administration to the skin are approximately a tenth of a mil, whereas with a hollow microneedle device, it can administer up to two mils. And, you know, as an example, many of the vaccine formats that exist today are 0.5 to 1 mil vaccine dose volumes. I should probably also mention here the other interest with microneedles in vaccines is the potential, of course, to reduce cold chain. And this, of course, now is in the context of the solid microneedles being a non-aqueous system. We've had discussions with a number of companies who have approached us with that as well. Probably just stepping back to, I think it's also worth saying, for any technology, that for the patients, you know, microneedles have the potential to increase compliance, and this is obviously important for any kind of technology that's being developed. And in the case of vaccines, you know, microneedles have the potential to increase their efficacy, obviously, by reducing the number of vaccinations needed that can induce the immune response, dose sparing, you know, and that, of course, reduces cost and greater safety margin. Absolutely fascinating. It didn't occur to me that effectively the skin is an immune organ. And you're directing the vaccine to the right place at the right time. And I'm a vaccinator and I've vaccinated well over 5,000 people in the town that I live. But the biggest issue that I have seen recently, and I'm talking about the younger age group below the age of 40, I'm now down into obviously 15 years of age to 12 years of age, is the fear factor. And it kind of dawned on me that many young people have never seen a very large needle and most of our vaccines we give these days tend to be liquid, so a little spray up the nose. And anything that can minimise the fear of a large needle, I think, would be absolutely critically important. I've had 20 stone rugby players sitting on the floor crying because of the fact of getting a, a needle. You name it, I've seen it. And it causes huge, huge mayhem because people don't really understand. If you want to vaccinate a thousand people a day, it means these people have to come in, they've got to be consented, got to be dealt with, got to be inoculated, cancelled, and then they have to leave. And you, you try and do one every five minutes and really hard. 
And I think anything that can reduce that fear factor, I think, is very important. I do remember seeing microneedles in 2008, actually, when I was in Switzerland. Um, I was fascinated by microneedles. What I saw then was rather crude, I suppose. Uh, Lisa, can you give me more background as to, obviously, you're committed to microneedles. So where are you today from where we were in 2008? We've continued over the 15-year time frame to work in, I would say, two ways. We work for the things that we think are the future, and we do that in a self-funded way to try to make some new technologies and to refine the ones that may already have been started. And in addition to the self-funded work that we do that's really early, we then partner with academia, small and large pharma companies, and even government agencies to really take the things that are more final molecules and final devices and bring them closer to commercialization. The two main things that we have the ability to focus on are the arrays themselves. So for both the solid and hollow microstructured systems, over time, we have investigated different lengths different shapes, different spacing of the individual structures, and then moving beyond the individual, you know, microstructure. We've also taken a look at our arrays, and we have more finely tuned the spacing between needles. And in addition, you know, whether they're in a circle or an oval or a hexagonal pattern, things like that. So it really depends on the dose and the desired depth of penetration for what those arrays eventually get progressed with. Now, we're talking about breaching the skin, and so I would be remiss to not mention that we also have done quite a bit with device development. John described that we have both solid and hollow devices that are um, used for those arrays. And we've taken an approach where early on we have devices that are able to be, I'll say, hand-built and tuned and really played around with in the lab for understanding how they work. And then as time has gone on, we've been able to understand which ones work best. And so we've moved from those, you know, hand-built devices. We've developed our test methods and our manufacturing understanding to be able to progress them to being more reproducible, you know, less hand-built, more reproducible. And in the case of our solid microstructure device, that one is a reusable device for hundreds of uses. When we work with our partners, we have the end game in mind where we're looking at a product on the market. And so we work with partners to make sure that we're fulfilling our requirements for human factor studies, design controls, and helping them partner to meet global regulatory requirements. So that's, we've had a lot of fun over the last 15 years developing both the arrays and the devices. Actually, I was just talking about how these microneedles can convey less fear. I think, John, I didn't ask you the most obvious question. Are microneedles painful and how quickly can they be delivered? I think you touched on it. It could take more than a couple of minutes, but are they painful? Do they confer advantages and reduce the fear factor? Very good question. Okay, the two points to consider here, and I think that they are pain and needle phobia. They're different, but they're related. So first of all, in regard to pain, the bottom line is microneedles are tolerable and acceptable. That is the fairest comment that I can say, and it's based on data. I should also point out that we've conducted, as Lisa alluded to earlier, human factor studies, which included subjects that have rheumatoid arthritis. And again, a key conclusion from that was that the microneedles are tolerable and acceptable. And again, 
pain is also characterized. And in this particular case, pain is characterized as minimal in most of those subjects that commented. And lastly, I have asked our partners about their patients' experiences using Condevis microneedles. Okay, and this is all personal conversation with our partners on this. And the general comment that I get from our partners is that the patients do not report any issues. And so in a nutshell, without being able to put a meter on pain, I think the most accurate statement that I can make is that our microneedles are tolerable and acceptable. And a final note on pain is that keep in mind, if the drug substance or the formulation is painful, then injecting it into the skin is going to be painful. And so, for instance, an acidic solution injected in the skin will definitely be painful. There's no question about that. And actually, there's some data that's published on that. So, and then just let me briefly here, Gino, just again, go back to this needle phobia point. And, and like I said, pain and needle phobia are two different concepts, but they are related. So consider for a conventional needle and syringe for administration of a vaccine that would be in the deltoid muscle, as you, were, you know, kind of were alluding to earlier. A needle is what? Typically, you know, the conventional needle is 22 to 25 gauge. It's what? 25 to 38 millimeters long, and it's about a half a millimeter thick. Now, a hollow microneedle, as an example, it's approximately 33 gauge needle. It's 1.5 millimeters long, and it's half as thick as a traditional needle. So in this particular example, the needle is 20 times shorter than the conventional needle that's used to inject someone in the muscle, and it's half as thick. And so really very simply, and you know this because you mentioned this, is people don't want to see a needle. And if the needle is 20 times shorter, then there's a less intimidating factor with microneedles. So microneedles, they just don't look like conventional needles. And the overall impression is, like I said, they look less intimidating. And I realize that this is completely subjective, but we've been approached by companies, and this is very real now, we've been approached by companies that have products that are delivered with a needle and syringe. And they've approached us about using our microneedle technology because they have told us that a subset of their patients that are prescribed the drug do not want to take the drug or are hesitant about taking it because they don't want to inject themselves. And in part, this is fear of pain and just fear of the needles in general. And then I should probably just conclude on this point by saying that I'm not here claiming that our microneedles will cure the clinical condition of needle phobia. Rather, I'm just simply pointing out that the overall perception between conventional needles and microneedles. And I hope that that addresses your question. Well, it does. And I think just to confirm what you've just said, the points I'm seeing as a healthcare practitioner and a trained vaccinator is if it doesn't look like a needle, we'll have less problems. There is a significant issue with needle phobia, more than I, I ever anticipated. And if vaccinations are going to be a fact of life over the next three, four years, it certainly needs to be dealt with because it may take longer to use microneedles. But I can assure you, spending five, 10 minutes calming somebody down prior to a vaccination slows the whole thing down. And of course, what does happen and can happen, they'll faint. And that means then you've then got to work out, is that an aphylactic reaction or a genuine faint? And I've seen all of this day in, day out since January of this year. So I think it's really important, particularly now where I think it's very clear vaccines are having a fantastic impact on survival rates. It's something which I never realised, John and Kandev, until working on the front line, so to speak, in, in the vaccination programme. We talked a bit about the great work that Kandev did about inhalers and manufacturing and supply chains, keeping them open. 
So my next question really to Lisa is, what about manufacturing of these devices? How scalable is it? We have taken, I'll say, a three-phase approach. We have initially, when we're working with a new molecule or a new partner, we're doing things one at a time. So doses or injectors are made by hand, one at a time, really trying to understand early phases and challenges that are going to be encountered as we scale up. When we're doing things one at a time, we make maybe tens or hundreds of things, you know, something amenable to a day or two of work. And those types of samples are often used just in lab bench experiments or in early preclinical studies. Once we have some knowledge of what's working and not working, we move to what I'll call a pilot scale situation. When we get here, then we start to restrict some of the flexibility that we needed in that first step. And we put in maybe some very rudimentary automation. And we, in this case, can start to make things more reproducibly. And we'll make batches that are then, you know, instead of tens or hundreds, now we're talking single digit thousands, or maybe even if we get confident, double digit thousands. So somewhere between a thousand and 15,000 doses in a batch. This has served us really well so far the radius health study for osteoporosis. This is an example of where we've made many batches over the years. And in total, with all of the manufacturing batches and efforts that we've gone through, we've made over 200,000 GMP doses for human clinical trials. And then as the program progresses, we move to full-scale manufacturing. And that's what we're in the process of building now. And in this case, the process windows will be set targets that are being hit. And ultimately, we're talking about being in this stage of millions of doses. That's what we're working toward right now. Thank you, Lisa. Sounds very promising, very encouraging. Clearly, the technology has certainly moved on since 2008. I think we're coming to the end of our podcast. and It would be not appropriate to me not to talk to you, John, you're an immunologist, not to ask you an immunology question. And as an immunologist, What's been your views over the last 18 months? In regard to the pandemic, we've learned that, one, we can develop vaccines faster. We can develop new technologies because we're forced to. But it's also pointed out a number of issues and potential problems for us. And I think there's, oddly, there's a silver lining in all of this. And as an example, you know, with COVID-19, It's accelerated technologies like messenger RNA vaccine technology, as well as other vaccine technologies. You know, a number of these companies that were working in the background, moving relatively slowly, were working in other therapeutic areas, such as oncology. These companies like BioNTech and Moderna, et cetera. And as we begin to move forward, they will take these technologies, many of them, or if they haven't developed them, they will certainly consider to develop them and then use them now in other areas, such as cancer vaccination. And obviously, where where we're sitting, this is really good news for the population as a whole, because, you know, now we have this opportunity to treat other infectious diseases with these new technologies and also uh, cancer as well. And then, of course, for Condev, it's good news because we have technology that can allow them to do that, such as our hollow microneedle technology is is an example right now. So regarding the pandemic, though, or any pandemic, not just the current pandemic, it's pretty clear that we need to find ways to easily manufacture and easily vaccinate people across the globe. 
and that includes producing stable vaccines, really stable formulation. Preferably, it would be eliminating cold chain, if that's possible, and to be able to find a way where we could, I'll say, ship and administer the vaccines in a convenient and simple manner. And, you know, this does include reducing the fear of vaccination because there's a subset of a population, a reasonable subset of the population that's hesitant about being vaccinated because of fear of administration. So we've learned that we can develop technologies and we can move quickly, but it's not that easy to vaccinate the entire globe. And we need to really think about where in the manufacturing process, the supply chain process, and in the executing the vaccination stage process. We need to think about those in detail in order to do better in the future. Thank you, John. In the UK, at least, we've now heard that it's possible to do flu vaccines and COVID at the same time. That'll be a very interesting technology approach as well. Thank you, John, Laura, Lisa, Kendeva, for your time today. It's been an absolutely fascinating podcast. I love these podcasts of science and technology, manufacturing, all coming into one blend. I think it's great. And again, just on behalf of the Royal Pharmaceutical Society, to thank you for coming in today and all the staff involved that played a vital role in keeping the supply chains open. Thank you so much for your time today. Gina, thank you. I've enjoyed it very much. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks, Gina. Take care. Enjoy your beer. Cheers. Both technologies from Kindever, the hollow microneedle transdermal system and the solid microneedle transdermal system, are both currently in development. The HMTS device is currently in Phase 2A, and the SMTS device is currently in Phase 3. Thank you for listening to the RPS Pharmacene podcast. If you know someone interesting from the world of pharmacy and beyond, please get in touch with the hashtag RPS Pharmacene on Twitter. See you next time. Mm-hmm.